Hello, patrons. Thanks so much for joining us for this maximal episode. You are listening to the Minimalists private podcast. Today, we're going to talk about less is the magic number and answer a bunch of surprise questions. But first, let's read some more about less, Josh. All right, we got uh, so. This is a little segment we do, Claire. We're here with uh, Claire Potter, by the way. She wrote this great book. It's called Welcome to the Circular Economy. The subtitle is The Next Step in Sustainable Living. And we're going to dive into this here in a moment. Be- before we read this, I have this article from a former podcast guest of ours, Andrew McAfee, was interviewed for oh, yeah. The Insider. Mm. And so this is a little segment we do. We read something as a jump off point so we can discuss it. We can agree with it. We can disagree with it. We can learn more about it. And hopefully you can illuminate some of this for us and add some clarity. So here's the title of the article. An MIT researcher says we should trash all our recyclable plastic. And he's probably right. Mm. Now Now we're getting into it. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Now we're getting into it. Anytime I talk about this at a live event, people, we're all appalled. And in fact... The thought of taking a plastic water bottle and simply chucking it in a trash can at this point. Sounds horrible. It mm-hmm. does. It makes me feel guilty just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Right. But the opposite, which we're going to learn here, is quite often when we, when we recycle these things, they end up in the ocean. Yeah. So let me read this real quick and then we'll uh, we'll have a discussion about it. Just 40 years ago, the idea of garbage handlers going door to door, picking up recyclable items like cans, paper and plastic and shipping them off to be repurposed was a twinkle in America's eye. Woodbury, New Jersey, pioneered the nation's first curbside recycling system when, in 1980, garbage collectors started towing a trailer for reusable household waste. MIT researcher Andrew McAfee explains in his new book, More From Less. It's a rosy look at how capitalism and tech progress, along with robust regulations, have perhaps made people in the U.S. better stewards of the planet by allowing us to reduce consumption while growing economically. In his book, McAfee calls metal recycling great since it gives us cheaper metal products and reduces total greenhouse gas emissions. He's also on board with paper recycling. But he vehemently believes Americans should trash plastic waste by burying it underground in well-managed modern landfills. Mm. He thinks attempting to sort plastic recycling is ultimately a waste of time and energy, and his point may be worth considering. The notion that disposing of trash in 2019 or 2022 is environmentally unsound, I just don't buy that, he said. The carbon benefits, the greenhouse gas benefits of recycling are actually very, very small. Really not worth it, McAfee said. Mm -hmm. What is really environmentally unsound is what we are doing up until China put a band on it, which is packing all of our plastic, sending it across the ocean to a country that engaged in environmentally very, very dirty practices Mm. to try to recycle that. Mm. McAfee is not alone in his condemnation of plastic recycling. And it goes on. There's some interesting stats in here. Let me see if I can find some of those. In 2017, a report published in Scientific Advances suggested only 9% of the plastic that we ever use is recycled. 9%? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the other 91% ocean? 
a lot of it's in the ocean. A lot of it is in landfills. A lot of it gets incinerated. Yeah. So, Claire, let's let's talk about this because at first, when I before I read your book, I'm like, oh, this will be fun that Claire can come in and disagree with Andrew. Mm. And then I read her book, and she's like, well, the linear economy is basically the same thing as the recycling economy. Yes. Mm. And so it's not the problem isn't re- to recycle or not to recycle. It's those single use things that are the problem in the first place, right? Yeah, and I think. I mean, it's a great article and the the plastic is the one thing that a lot of people have in their daily lives and they want to be responsible with. So mm-hmm. the thing about recycling it and, you know, it's like, please recycle me is what's stamped on the back of all the packaging as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, as it demonstrates, about 9% is effectively recycled. So that is recycling that actually has happened and it's turned from the thing that it was through a process into a new thing. So that is effective recycling. That is mm. so small. And because the systems are so interconnected across, you know, oceans. So as I say, going to China, Indonesia, a lot of the plastic gets sent to now. Yeah. There is a huge amount of opportunity for that material to escape. Yeah. So it escapes the system and it ends up in the environment in some way. So that could be landfill, um, poorly managed. It might be in the ocean. Uh, purposefully or not purposefully, it can end up elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And this is part of the problem is that the system that we have at the moment of taking something that will last pretty much forever Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we yet to outlive any piece of plastic. We've said this before. Mm. Um, And then you treat it in a system that will just destroy it because recycling is a destructive process before Mm. it is a, you know, a constructive process. And those systems don't work. Yeah, They really don't work Mm. um, because of the global nature of them and because of the low cost of the item as well and because of the mixture of materials that we have. So we don't have just one type of plastic. We have multiple types of plastic. So that means that the ability to reprocess them at all is very small. And the value is very small. And if the value doesn't work, and this is why economy is part of circular economy, the economics have to stack up or else it doesn't get done properly. Yeah. Mm. Can you maybe expound on like, when you think about the circular economy, how does that take plastics out of the picture? Or how does it, does, does it address the plastic problem? It doesn't take them out so much, right? Because right. like mm-hmm. there's this yeah. plastic in some of this microphone, this little twist knob is plastic. Yep. This yeah. isn't a single use thing. Right. And, but it does seem to me that plastic will still play a role, but probably not the same role. Sure. I mean, yeah. all the materials we have are, are um, for our use. I was going to say our disposal then, but that would be really bad, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, so all of the materials we have for our use at serve in a really important role. So like we say, the plastics here, yeah. that is a better use of the material than having, you know, a drinks bottle that you're just going to use and then yeah. dispose of mm-hmm. in whichever way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, circularity is very much about resources and materials, but it's also about hierarchy of different things that you can do. And actually recycling, we had the reduce, reuse, recycle which Mm -hmm. came about around the 1970s, we think. Nobody Mm -hmm. can really lay claim to the reduce, reuse, recycle mantra that, you know, I grew up with, certainly. Mm -hmm. But recycling was at the bottom. So you reduced something, you reduced your usage of something, Mm -hmm. you reused what you had, Mm -hmm. and then recycling was at the bottom. And yet we've kind of flipped it on its head. Mm -hmm. And recycling has been the thing that everybody's told to do. Recycle, make sure you recycle. Plays a part but it's certainly not the first thing you should be thinking of. It should be about reducing something if you don't need it, Mm -hmm. reusing something. Of course, plastic, you can reuse it again and again Mm -hmm. if it is something that is designed in that manner rather than being something single use. Mm -hmm. So actually recycling is literally the last resort before we teeter off into the landfill or the incineration because quite often they're kind of in the same place. Yeah, And that's where we have so much symbiosis here 
is with minimalism, that's the first thing. We're talking about reduction. And right. you even uh, mentioned the film in, in your book. In fact, there's uh, pages 34 to 51. You talk about, well, Ryan used the term earlier, less is the magic number. And you talk about the seven areas that are ripe for reduction. Mm. And the first one is ownership of things. Now, when you first hear that, you're like, uh-oh. This communist is telling me I'm not supposed to own anything. No, 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 no. But when the average American household owns 300,000 items and the UK isn't far behind mm-hmm. us. Yep. In fact, UK children, I, I hear, actually play with almost as many toys as the American kids play with. And, oh, wow. and yeah. it's, you know, it's about 300 to- well, they have 300 toys. They don't play. They play with 12 of them mm-hmm. on a daily average. And so. We have so many things. We own so many things. They actually get in the way of our use of those things. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to read a little excerpt from your book here. This is from Welcome to the Circular Economy. Number one, ownership of things. This is from the seven areas ripe for reduction. This is one area in which we can certainly learn from the minimalists. If you don't actually need to own something, reduce what you have. Mm. That's the key. It's not about Deprive yourself of what you have. It's not about don't own things. It's about understanding what are the things that add value to my life? What augments or amplifies, enhances my experience of life? Those things can be great. Mm-hmm. But then everything else, the excess is literally clutter. And so letting go of that clutter. And then you go on in here to talk about waste, uh, waste being a, a general term here. Mm-hmm. And feel free to butt in and talk about any of these things here. But you, uh, you, the line you have in this section is, in a circular economy, waste is just a resource in the wrong place. Mm. Yeah. It's like some people say weeds are not weeds. They're just flowers that you don't want to grow too quick. It's, yeah. it's you know... Waste, we talk about as a catch-all term. So something is waste, it has little value. So something, you know, you know, a waste bin, for example. And actually that material is really useful and it's a resource that we should be capturing more of. Mm. And we don't capture enough of our resources. We don't value our resources in the way that we should. Mm. They are seen as single use or we keep them in our cupboards. And that's a material, again, that isn't being used by somebody for something that mm-hmm. they really will create value from. Yeah. So circularity is around understanding the value of everything from our things to our time to the way we spend our lives um, and also valuing those resources more and making sure they don't escape to a way wherever a way is ocean mm. landfill incineration but we gather that back in and use that for something that's useful rather than starting from scratch again and again and again so that's you know, digging stuff literally out the ground yeah we've got so much resources already here circularity is about keeping that value locked up mm. and making sure they have more than one life is there anything that stands out like when you think of waste, like something that we don't reuse enough, like is plastic? I mean, that's to me would be like the number one thing that stands out. Is there anything mm. else that stands out to you? Actually, it's, it's not so much about reuse, but the thing that I would always go to with waste is, is food. Mm. The amount of food that is wasted globally is staggering. So this is food that is fit for human consumption. And the statistic from the sort of Europe and the UK is about anything from 25 to sort of 30% of food is wasted. So Mm. imagine getting your shopping and you've got four bags of shopping and you immediately throw away one bag. Wow. And now that would seem like insanity, right? Because you're like, I've just bought that and it's going in the bin or going, you know, elsewhere. Mm That's exactly what people are doing. It's stuff that, you know, end of life stuff, stuff that goes out of date. Um, You don't fancy it. 
So eventually, oh, I'll get something else instead. Yeah. Um, in the US, it's up to 40%. Up to forty percent. Yeah. Oh no, it's like <laughs> we're the best, yeah. Ryan. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. But the thing Staggering. about that is, think about all that energy, all of those resources have gone to making that food, yeah. you know, growing it, transporting it, whatever that thing has maybe been fed in its life. So all of that that goes into it, mm. and just going to waste. Yeah. So redirection is part of a circular economy. So things like waste. How do you understand what is waste for you? Mm. I.e., you don't need it. Mm-hmm. But how can you connect it into a system? where it actually can be used. So food redirection apps or something like that. So you can think about all of the stuff that we use, Mm -hmm. consume or not consume, and then think about that ability to connect it to something that's worthwhile. Yeah. Even like talking about food, it makes me realize that, you know, there's not just one answer. Like, well, here's what we do with food to make it not so wasteful. Mm -hmm. There are, you know, 10 different things that how we need to like redirect our food when I think about the 91% of plastic, is there anything that like we could tell our listeners right now that would help more plastic actually get recycled? For example, I did not know until like probably within the last five years, if you throw a piece of plastic away and it has like food on it, that's not getting recycled. Yeah. It has to be this this clean recycling, essentially. Yeah. And the other thing is the color of plastic, mm. which again, just seems kind of mad. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of the systems that are set up, and again, I mean, we're talking in a global nature and everything, I mean, even in the UK, it depends where you're living in the UK as to what system it's linked into and how it works or doesn't. So mm-hmm. we need a unified structure. But if a, a plastic container is black, quite mm-hmm. often the actual recycling facilities can't understand what it is because they sort of, you know, they use lasers to reflect and understand the material. Can't do that if it's if it's a black mm. material. Um, so it just immediately gets discarded. Okay. So even the material itself might be fully reprocessable, mm-hmm. but just the color itself can actually block that as a system. Okay. So what is so complicated about plastic and plastic recycling is it is deeply complicated as right. a system. Yeah, again, there's not <laughs> yeah. just one thing. No, yeah, it really right. isn't. I mean, the, the best thing to think with, with plastic is utilize plastic for all of the benefits. So something that's going to last a long time in mm-hmm. your life. Yeah. And of course, we've got, uh, you know, my, my snowboard goggles, mm-hmm. they're plastic. Yeah. They're, you know, Great I've use. used them for, oh God, 20 years. Yeah. I've had my Oakleys and I love them. Yeah. So that's a great use for material. Whereas uh, a spoon to stir your coffee yeah. maybe isn't such a good use for material. It's terrible because you know I mean? it also leaches into the hot liquid <laughs> oh, as well. Gotcha. So now you have plastic in your coffee. It's mm. what it's not percept- perceive. We can't perceive it, right? Mm. But it goes in this because we can't perceive it it goes into our body still so you get a little if you're using those little plastic stirs or whatever the single use and in fact that's number wow. three here in the seven areas ripe for reduction plastic and single use packaging i want to talk about that you talked about food waste which is number four here but so when we're talking about plastic and i think the article we read earlier ryan with uh, andrew mcafee the the thing that he's advocating is don't recycle it. If you recycle really? it, if mm-hmm. you put your plastic in recycling, yeah. it is going, it's more likely than not going to end up in the ocean. It's almost, it, it's exponentially more likely to end up in the ocean than if you just throw it away. Now, yeah. the third option is to not b- buy it in the first place. Right. And if you radically reduce by 90, 95% the amount of plastic and you're throwing away the other 5%, you're not doing that same harm to the ocean. But 
the fewer things you can buy that are plastic, that's really the place to start rather than worrying about recycling. Now, I will yeah. say this, and and correct me if I'm wrong here. Let's so those goggles that you have, or if mm. I buy some supplements that happen to be in a plastic bottle, even though I try to get them in glass when possible. Mm-hmm. I have been, over the last year or so since we talked to Andrew McAfee, I've been throwing it away and it feels weird to me every time because I'm so used to recycling it, but then I just tell myself, I don't want this to end up in the ocean. Mm. And so what uh, what do you do in that scenario? Oh, see, I am still an avid recycler yeah. back in the UK. I mean, the UK's uh, waste gets exported a lot. Mm. Um and that's part of the issue with plastics generally. Yes. So what I always say, and I completely agree that um, there's a huge amount of plastic that enters the ocean, about a garbage truck's worth every minute, if we think about globally. Staggering. I mean, crazy. eight wow. to nine million tons. Oh I mean, this is all estimation because, you know, how can you kind of measure it? So that is the equivalent. And of course, a lot of it is coming from developing countries that don't have the infrastructure that we have. Yeah. And a lot of people do say that. It's like, well, it's not our fault because it's not, you know, it's not coming from us. But then you think about how plastic is exported to other countries and think, well, it kind of is us. Mm-hmm. So what I always think about is, you know, I've been called the plastic police before. A lot of my research is in marine plastic. That's okay. my sort of my nerd niche, as I call it. That's uh, that's my thing. <laughs> um, uh, but I would be a huge advocate for localized and really much closer to where you are reprocessing of any material. Yeah. So instead of it traveling fast distances, it goes to a localized hub that can be collecting materials with less ability for it to escape mm-hmm. and actually turning that material back into stuff that is useful for that community. Mm. So a community, so we're here in LA, stuff that's useful for an LA community will be different to elsewhere in the US, which will be different to the UK. Yeah. So how can we try and make things closer to wherever we are to best benefit wherever we are with the materials that we have to hand? Yeah. So that's how you create and lock up value much easier. Mm. We've got three other areas in the book. I'll encourage you to check out the book. It's called Welcome to the Circular Economy. Uh, It ends uh, with a section here about less is the magic number. And so I just wanted to go to that really quickly. And what you're really talking about here, Claire, is consider this chapter as name reduce. I know it's been a pretty big chunk to read through. I hear you. (laughs) But it's a lot that we'll discuss here uh, is built on the solid foundation of reduction of waste, materials, and carbon. Just remember that reduction does not equal deprivation. I disagree with those environmentalists who say we are going to have to make do with less. In fact, we're going to have to make do with more. More beauty, more community, more fulfillment, more art, more music, and material objects that are fewer in number but superior in utility and aesthetics. Mm. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about minimalism. It's not about depriving yourself uh, of beauty or of utility. In fact, it enhances those things. The paradox of reduction or the paradox of minimalism is that I actually get far more value from my material possessions now because they're not watered down by hundreds of thousands of useless Mm. trinkets. Mm. Let's uh, talk about some misconceptions of sustainability here. So quite often people have... um, they come to the table with their own ideologies, their own dogmas, their own talking points. What are some common misconceptions about being environmentally friendly? Oh, the most common one is that you have to do everything. And you're either an environmentalist or you're not. Mm. Oh, and wow. it's like, oh, okay. Um, 
And I've had conversations with people go, yeah, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not a greenie. And I'm like, oh, okay. What exactly do you mean by that term? And yeah. then you sort of you get in, you know, talk to them a little bit more. I go, well, I don't do this and I don't do this and I, you know, I eat this and therefore I'm not a greenie. Yeah. I go, oh, great. So, you know, oh, I see you've got a coffee in a reusable cup. I go, yeah, yeah. Well, it helps keep my coffee warm when I'm on a commute. Mm. And they go, great. Well, that's reuse. That's very much part of the circular economy. That's part of utilizing something as long as possible. And I go, oh, yeah, but I'm, I'm not an environmentalist though. That's cool. If you don't want to label yourself as anything. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Um, and I think that's one of the misconceptions you see a lot is that you, you either have to do everything or you, you're doing nothing at all. Mm. Um, and of course, you see so many articles written and people saying, you know, you should be doing this and you should be doing that. And there's so much guilt yeah. that is thrown around that we're almost labelled by others and we sort of, we click into that. Yeah. So that's something I see a lot and it kind of aggravates me. And the other thing I see a lot is that having, being uh, an environmentalist or having a responsible choice costs a lot more money. Sometimes it does. Mm. A lot of the time it really doesn't. So how do you get past that barrier and explain it in a different way that means that people aren't purchasing loads of stuff because that's the zero waste image they see on Instagram for example you know yeah. buying a lot of things yeah. to be a zero waste person doesn't make a whole lot of sense yeah so. but it looks really pretty on Instagram yeah. right <laughs> and that's the fallacy like to create minimalist uh, aesthetics for a particular I mean even the studio is a great example of this like we had to put a lot of intention behind these things but it required buying some stuff mm. and we are you know we're, we're pretty intentional about the things that we bring in but even we mess up from time to time we bought mm. the wrong microphones that just didn't work for us and now we're going to resell them and so someone else will be able to get used from we're not going to throw them in a storage closet and say mm. well we'll get to those someday right mm -hmm. and so the sustainable thing is really being intentional buying the thing that actually might stay in your life for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. Now, if it stops adding value, you don't want to turn your house into a landfill. I think mm -hmm. that's quite often what we've done. Yeah. We have 300,000 items, 90% of which are useless. Oh, I just have a giant landfill with walls now. <laughs> this is all just sort of waste, right. trash. It's just decomposing even slower <laughs> because it's not buried properly. <laughs> yeah, and so, so if I'm not getting value from it, it doesn't mean that someone else can't. Mm. So that's where the letting go comes into play. Yes, we want to have things that will last us for years, but if they stop adding value to us, maybe they'll last someone else for many years as well. Yes, mm. this is part of like what we call the circularity gap. So that is a report that's released every single year by, um, by a group called Circle Economy. And they do look at how much resources we've extracted and used, which obviously in the hundreds of billions of tons, mm. and then look at how much has been reprocessed. Wow. And, you know, only about... 10% if that, sometimes less, actually goes into being reprocessed. So where's the rest of it? You know, it's disappeared, effectively. Sometimes it is. It's sitting in our cupboards. It's it's locked away. Sometimes it's being used. Mm -hmm. You know, stuff like we've got on the desk here. It's stuff that's not being reprocessed because it has a purpose to it. Mm -hmm. Um but all of that stuff that is sort of elsewhere, it is about value creation. Mm -hmm. So value in the sense of what it's bringing to your life, not in the monetary sense. Yeah. Um, and the whole circular economy is about understanding the value points and how you can best benefit them with your actions around the whole journey of an item from coming out of the ground effectively to then its end of life. Yeah. But that might be the next life with the next person mm. before it gets destroyed and recycled. Yeah. yeah. 
you know, you bring up, you brought up the uh, kind of the guilt tripping that happens a lot when it comes to environmentalists speaking out or whatever it is. I mean, even that term environmentalist, like I'm, I'm using that kind of loosely. Um, it's one of the reasons why I, I think Josh and I haven't gone out of our way to talk about the environment a lot. Uh, for me personally, it is about like, how, how do you talk about the environment in a way that gets people excited? That isn't this guilt tripping, but is more of this like, Hey, we're in this together. And this is, you know, the, the, these are the talking points that are really going to uh, get people excited about it. Have, have you ever thought about that? Or is there anything that maybe when you're talking about the environmental stuff that uh, you can sneak into a conversation that isn't necessarily like this guilt tripping, hey, we're all going to be dead in 50 years, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's the conversations that you can have around all of these subjects are, are deeply complicated because you kind of want people to understand and, and know the facts, mm -hmm. some of which are crap. Do you know yes. what? They're awful. Yeah. How do you make some of the, the stats that we've even spoken about? How do you make that appealing to carry mm. on a conversation? Right. So you kind of need to show the reality of where we are before you can then go, but this is what we can do about it. Mm. So there's that really equal balance of sort of pessimism and optimism, but actually understanding the situation and then trying to figure out how to move forward as a collective, not just mm. I do this, you do this, but how do we all fit in like a massive jigsaw? Right. It all takes all those pieces to fit together to make yeah. that whole, whole picture. Yeah. Um, but what's really interesting is, um, so I'm a lecturer at the University of Sussex in um, back in the UK, and circular, you know, circular economy is my thing. But I'm teaching um, product designers. Oh wow! So the guys that are going out and are going to be making all of this stuff in the future. And oh, I love it. Yeah, it's brilliant because they come and they, uh, even the poor guys, they have a, a module with me, which is the role of design in the circular economy, which of course is vast, and they do they get hit with these really quite depressing statistics but you know don't forget this is what you can do and I had a student a few years ago said they've never been so upset and yet so enlivened mm. in any lecture because it's literally <laughs> the roller coaster of the up and down yeah but they come with a real drive and an energy which is what makes me so optimistic for the future is that they understand the situation we're in they mull it over and then everything they do from that point onwards is trying to figure out the best situation for the product that they're creating. Yeah. So some of it might be using a type of plastic. Some of it might not be to do with that at all. Yeah. But it's understanding all the ingredients you have and then figuring out how to piece together the best cake for that situation. Yeah. And once people understand all the ingredients they have, they can do a lot more with it mm. rather than just going to that one answer. Oh, I like that. So it's really, it's about empowering someone to make better choices and especially with the product design, like that's the perfect spot for you to be in. I remember uh, we had an event and um, this like 16, 17 year old kid got up and asked a question. He's like, you know, I really love to make things. I want to be an engineer. He's like, but I'm also a minimalist. And I'm at like, you know, I'm at odds with myself because I don't want to put more things into the world. Mm. Um, but I also love to create. And he was like, what do you suggest? And I'm like, dude, make a decomposable uh, uh, cell phone. <laughs> like, you know, just, like if that's where your mind goes, but that's what you're doing with product design. It's mm -hmm. like, hey, look, we need these things. But if we design them deliberately, then we can, uh, yeah, maybe have a little bit less of a negative impact on the environment. I Like I remember seeing, uh, makes me think of, uh, it was like a water jug or something. But basically, they they designed this water jug 
when it was um when it was empty you could fill it with something but essentially you can make bricks with them and like you could like make a house out of these water jugs essentially but mm. like those are the types of ideas though that i think um do give us a lot of hope for the future oh for sure and we had one of our um students a couple of years ago um lucy hughes in her final year she worked with the biological waste that came from um a fish processing plant mm. so i was working with the guys on the technical waste which is the stuff that's synthetic you know the plastics metals etc. Um, and she took the fish waste and she created a home compostable, so you could put it in your garden, plastic film. So mm. it was a biological film mm. from the biological fish waste. Oh, wow. So yeah, and she won the Dyson Award for the whole of the world for that year. Wow. So it's staggering to think that she took this final project and she is creating something that's going to create hopefully monumental change yeah. in some places. It's yeah. not a kind of material that's suitable for everything. Mm -hmm. um, we've had other guys that have designed things that are disassemblable. So you could take them to pieces to get the you know the materials out that are of high value mm. without destroying everything. So yeah. disassembly is part of the way our products could be designed. And there's uh, the Fairphone is a great example of that. You're saying about a biological, you know, degradable phone. Yeah. The Fairphone is designed in a way a little bit like a Lego. So mm. you can take bits out and you can add things in. So if you need a new camera component, you can literally unclick it and put one back in. Okay. You don't need a new phone. And That's so cool. many of the things that we're sold, this is better, have mm. this, upgrade. Yeah, you might want a better camera. So wouldn't it be great if you could just buy the better camera, right. click it in place, and then you've got a product that suits your life more. Yeah, absolutely. For the last uh, decade or so, I've been wearing these, these boots, these beat up boots here. I have two pairs of them and one's across the street right now because they're being resold. Right. As opposed, and by the way, it's actually more expensive because of the way that yes, because I we're having them resold in LA yeah. versus just buying a new pair manufactured across the ocean and yeah. wherever Vietnam or Bangladesh or China, etc. And so it's it's like ten or fifteen dollars more to have these same boots resold. But at the same time, I continue to wear the. Now, at some point, I'm sure they'll wear, wear out to the mm -hmm. piece, to the part. They'll get to a part uh, where all of a sudden I can't use them for this purpose. And then maybe they can be reused elsewhere. And right. that's one thing about waste that you talk about the circular economy. The boots may not be boots forever, but they mm -hmm. may actually end up being something else mm. for someone else at some other period in time. Yeah. And the boots is a great example, actually, because. Um, yes, resolding them. And I've got a pair of boots exactly the same. It costs me more to resole them than it does actually to buy a brand new pair, yeah. which is kind of nuts. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing about the boots, particularly we think about leather boots, is that I bet they're really comfy, right? Yes. So the value in that is the fact that it's molded to your foot, the way you move. So you know you can put those boots on and they're not going to chafe. They're not going to give you any kind of discomfort. So the thing that actually you need to replace, the sole is a thing that isn't that important to you. That's mm. the thing that just stops your foot from getting dirty and wet. Yeah. Uh -huh. But the thing that has the value to you in the material is the stuff that's molded to your foot. Yeah. So why would you, if you think about it like that, yes, cost is always going to be a barrier to people. But if you think about it like that, why would you throw away the thing that's giving you the most comfort and value in that item? Yeah. Uh -huh. You wouldn't, because you've got to go through that process of breaking in the boots all over again. Yeah, you're basically paying to break in the boots. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, which mm. is, you know, so if I pay an extra 15 bucks to have these resold, but now I don't have to worry about breaking in the shoe or whatever else. And by the time I get it back from them, they clean it up. It looks brand new anyway, mm, right? Yeah. But it still has the same form to it. And so yeah. it's already sort of pre-fit for my foot. Yeah. 
Now, Claire, you uh, you studied interior architecture. Is that right? Did I read that yeah, correctly? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And so um, let me talk to you about how interior architecture, interior, the design of interior spaces can help save our planet. Oh, that's a big question. How long have we got? <laughs> um, yes, interior architecture. So first off... Um, when I first, first studied, started studying interior architecture, people go, oh, what, interior design? And interior design is part of it. Architecture is part of it. But it's really about constructing the interior of a building. So an architect will generally design the shell. And then an interior architect might come in and do everything from lighting decisions to mechanical and electrical engineering as well. So it's sort of everything else. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the way that interior architecture could work, we could think about how to make things that could change and flex according to the changing needs of the user. So the way a building is designed, the shell will remain the same. Mm -hmm. And really when we think about embodied carbon, i.e. the amount of emissions and energy that have gone into making anything, Mm -hmm. you want to keep it for as long as possible. So if we have a building, you don't want to be demolishing it and starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. So then an interior architect can come in and design a space that it can be amended. So for example, if this studio, you need to double the space of the studio. You could do it with relative ease without demolishing something or items could be movable or dismantleable mm. and you can change and, you know, buildings will change the same as people's needs will change. Mm-hmm. And also the materials that you choose. Are you choosing materials that are fit for purpose? Are you choosing materials that maybe have a recycled content? Yeah, I know, recycling, the lowest of the low. <laughs> but, you know, if we think about reprocessing our materials, we also need to have an avenue for that. Yeah. So if we are you know, able to specify or choose a material that has had a previous life, then that shows that it has value to it, which means it's more likely to be collected and more likely to be reprocessed rather than being incinerated or binned. So all of those decisions really, really can make a difference. Yeah, it seems to me that we often don't think about our spaces in in that way. And yet we, you know, the average American house is approaching 3,000 square feet, I believe. Mm. And and uh, we talked about it in our first film, Minimalism, with, with the heat map study, where we basically use 40% of our houses. And as the houses get bigger, that percentage doesn't stay the same. It actually mm-hmm. decreases, right? And so mm-hmm. some people use 10% of their house, right? Mm-hmm. I remember when uh, I saw Deion Sanders, he built a a tiny house, back house for his mansion, basically. But the tiny house he built was 7,000 square feet. Wow. <laughs> And I <laughs> all guess perspective, I guess. Yeah, tiny's all, yeah relative, I yeah. suppose, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, when we're thinking about our spaces, where we're thinking about heating them, cooling them, these are mm-hmm. all, these things all have an impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we can consider that up front when we're building a house, we're thinking about the square foot, how much, how much space do I actually need? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean everyone needs to live in a tiny house. The question is, what is appropriate for you in your life? I have friends who have six kids. And so putting them in a tiny house would be a -hmm. nightmare, I think, right? But there are some people who just want very little and then they can fit in a tiny house or a small apartment or whatever is appropriate for them. So they're not wasting a bunch of space because in our society, as soon as we get more space, we feel so compelled to fill it. Yeah. It's like time, isn't it? You expand to fill whatever you have. So if a task, Mm. you know, if you've got an hour to do a 10 minute task, it's going to take you an hour to do it. Just the way that it is. Um, Exactly the same with spaces. But I think what's interesting about buildings, architecture, quite often, the bigger, the better. The bigger the house, the more successful you are. Um, 
And that really is not the case. When you think about, I mean, in the UK, we've got, you know, the uh, cost of energy is increasing dramatically because of different price caps that are changing in April this year. So there's already lots of discussion about how the spaces that people own are going to cost them more money. Mm. So we've got lots of things compounded, some because of COVID and some for different reasons. And I think that's making a lot of people look at the spaces they have and think, do I really need to live in such a big place because you've got to heat it you've got to maintain it Mm -hmm. Uh, and when you're building stuff are you building it to the highest ability to retain its heat when it's got the heat Mm -hmm. Uh, renewable energy why are we not having solar panels if it's suitable for where you're living or some form of energy regeneration as well as you know the landscaping not just being a tag on but being something that is integral to the way that our buildings are designed. Yeah. This is often where where, where regulation goes wrong Mm. because in California, I heard uh, Bill Maher talking about this recently, all of the hoops he had to jump through in order to get his house to be solar powered because of all... Now, this is lobbyists who lobby the government to prevent you know solar right. from mm. being installed easily now it's not that we don't want any re- regulations around that we mm. want people to be safe we want to be installed correctly but at the same time we don't want it to be so difficult that it discourages everyone from going i mean we live in california yeah wouldn't it make sense for there to be way more solar energy here yeah and what's interesting also about different renewable energies is the one of the pushbacks you get is people saying well the payoff costs so how long it's going to take to recoup back the benefits in a monetary sense, the cost that it has, are just too big. Um, But the efficiency of things are changing every single year. So, you know, every single time that we go through a new generation of solar panel or any kind of renewable energy, Mm -hmm. it's getting better. It's becoming more efficient. They're getting slimmer. They're becoming less obtrusive. You can recess them into roof lines. So they don't have any kind of obstructive ability to sort of looking at a beautiful house anymore. Yeah. And it's also about discovering what is best for that type of home mm-hmm. or building mm-hmm. and exactly where you are in the world. So, yeah, in the UK, we have a lot of solar, but that's not going to be generating as much power mm-hmm. as it would be on most days in LA, for example. Right, yeah. So there's other things that people can look at as well. But having this sort of the lobbyist of it doesn't look attractive or it shouldn't be there. We need to think way, way beyond that now. We need a, a suite of solutions, not one silver bullet. I like where you're going with that because what we're talking about also is eventually as it gets better, it becomes more aesthetically pleasing as well. It may we may get to a point where solar is so much more aesthetically pleasing than a regular roof. You're like, oh, why would I want a roof when I have that beautiful new version of of solar energy? It looks Mm. stunning. And oh, by the way, it powers my house for free, basically. Yeah, it might even be films that go on glass. You can't even see it. That's beautiful. Mm, or paints cool. that can help absorb carbon and then, you know, create energy from that. So there's so much like mind-blowing research that's going into this. Yes. Um, uh, so, yeah, so it, it's something that is coming more and more and more um, and in an exciting way, really exciting way. Yeah. Well, Claire, we have some uh, surprise questions that our friend Malabama here, she, she gathered some surprise questions from our patrons. The first one is from Vijay. What are three things that every minimalist must consider to create a more sustainable life? Well, you have the three mm. R's in, in the book and you expand it to, I think there's like nine of them or 10 or I forget what the final count <laughs> I think is. 12. I 12 think it's 12. R's. <laughs> and so I, I don't like this sort of um, overly simplistic level of thinking. If I just do these three things, but then of course there is sort of the 80-20 rule where it's like, 
what is the low-hanging fruit here? Mm -hmm. And so maybe you could talk about three things for your average person or a handful of things that would make sense to live a more environmentally friendly life. Oh, oh, wow. That's a big question. Mm. Um, The first thing I would say to people is do an audit of the way that you live. Mm. Because what I talk about in the book, yeah, there's there's 12 different R's, 11 and 12 are kind of together. And yeah, a lot of us can sign, kind of work our way through that. But I've also had conversations with people that have said, uh, what, what things do I need to buy to become, you know, more environmentally friendly? Or what do I need to do to become more environmentally friendly? And the first thing I sort of say is, well, how do you live your life? Mm. You know, you don't need to buy a reusable coffee cup if you never get takeout coffee. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but people look at the Instagram and the Pinterest and like, oh, you know, all of those, you know, shopping guides, there are 10 things you need. And it's like, well, well no. Yeah. Straw is another one. People go, oh, I need to get a reusable straw. I go, great. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I hate straws. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah me too. Well, well, I saw that video of the turtle with a straw up its oh, nose. Yeah. I go, yeah, that's horrendous. So when was the last time you used a straw? <laughs> and they go, oh, um... 87. (laughs) And the thing is that most of us are able to pick up a glass, whatever, and drink something Mm -hmm. with our mouths Mm -hmm. and not need a a straw. Of course, some people do need straws for medical reasons. Some things are much more pleasurable to drink with a straw, i.e. things like, you know, a milkshake, for example. Trying to sort of drink a milkshake can be a bit problematic and a bit, you know, (laughs) all over the place. But most of us don't need a straw most of the time. So a thing like that, the first thing I'd say is do an audit of your life. Mm. Okay. What do you need? Yeah. And also what you don't need. So like we say, refusal is like the first R, refusing what don't you need. Yeah. Then you can start to think about what you can reduce. Okay, right. So I've done the refusing. Now, what can I think about reduction? What could I do to reduce the amount of materials I'm using, um, the single-use elements I have? Mm. But again, you could think, okay, well, I could say to people, well, ditch all the single-use packaging and go to a refill store and get loose produce. So don't buy, you know, sweet peppers in plastic, get loose peppers. And they'll go, yeah, I I can't do that because I don't have a store nearby. Well, yeah, you kind of need to understand the environment that you're in. Mm-hmm. You could say to somebody, you know, ditch your car and walk everywhere. Great. But if it's five miles from where you are to the nearest store, are you going to walk that all the time? Right. Not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So the template for one is not the template for the next person. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is always um, to figure out exactly where you are and yeah. then figure out what you can do. And then it kind of goes from there. So there isn't really a magic three. You know, three is a magic number. Uh-huh. Um, there isn't. It depends on you, but mm. just examining your life and figuring out what you can do. That's the first step. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah. We have a question here from Sarah. In the grand scheme of things, is printed paper a big deal for the environment? Isn't most paper made from recycled paper or trees that are planted specifically for paper? I mean, I, I did read your book on paper. I know, it is a paper book. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think this is perfect, though, because it's not a simple binary. Never, Mm -hmm. ever use paper again. I understand the the sort of enthusiasm for zero waste or for completely paperless offices. And we have a functionally paperless office, even though I print a few things here. (laughs) But we don't have giant file cabinets where we're hoarding stacks Mm -hmm. of paper or whatever. We just have radically reduced use of paper. The reason that it makes sense to use paper sometimes, Ryan and I used to do this podcast with screens in front of us, and we found it was distracting. Mm. And so actually removing the screens was worth the little bit of paper we had to to print. But getting back to the essence of Sarah's question here, 
Well, a lot of printed paper is made from recycled paper or trees that are planted uh, specifically for printing. What can you tell us about that? So paper is a really interesting example of something that we've been reprocessing for many years very effectively. So aluminum cans is one. We've been, you know, reprocessing that forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and paper is another. So when we think about curbside or recycling systems, it's one of the most readily available. Mm. And the thing with paper is it goes or should go down what we call a material cascade. So it starts off as, as a tree and it will be turned, hopefully, into a really high quality, maybe like an artist or a cartridge paper, as we call it in the UK, um, like a thick, really, really good quality paper. Mm. And then once it's reprocessed, it gets into a lesser quality paper. And mm. you can think about paper like hair. So it's fibres, it's natural fibres. So when it's first from, you know, the tree, it's quite long. Mm. Then when you reprocess it, you chop it and the fibres get shorter. And every time the fibres get shorter, they get weaker. So this is where we see the cascade in the quality of the paper. Mm. So you end up from something really high quality down to something that is quite low quality and quite small. So you might be talking about toilet paper, kitchen roll, that kind of stuff. So that is a cascade of a material from one process through another process through another process. Mm -hmm. Um, And it actually works quite well. And we do do it really quite effectively. Now, what is really bad with materials is where we take a material and you could say like a tree and you turn it from a tree into a pellet that you're going to burn in a wood burner. Mm. Because then you've taken all of that material that has a huge amount of potential and maybe put mm. it into something that's just going to be burnt. Yeah. So it literally is almost like a single-use tree, right? It's right. You've released all the carbon that it's drawn in and you just, you know, you've burnt it and released it. Mm. Um, and paper is so easy to find recycled now. If you're, if you're getting something printed, you can ask, can it be done on recycled paper? Or as we see, you know, the Forestry Stewardship Council or some kind of certification, which means that it's from a well-managed forest. And of course, we have well-managed forests. We have a lot of not well-managed forests that are destructive. Yeah. So again, it's about understanding where the thing is coming from. Mm. I like in your book, you talked about the, you know, we, we never put this is one place where regulation would totally make sense to me. We never put like this was th- this product played a role in destroying the Amazon forest, mm. right? <laughs> but imagine if like we could regulate that into yeah, anytime you're getting ready to buy something yeah. that you know destroyed, you know uh, contributed deforestation mm. or contributed X amount of pollution. If we had some sort of warning label about that, yeah. it might at least give some people a pause. The same way that the Surgeon General's warning on a pack of cigarettes. It's like, hey, this is going to kill you. You could say, well, hey, this plastic thing you're about to buy killed this many trees or whatever. And now all of a sudden you you have a correlation. Like you have like a uh, carbon footprint number on the back of it. Like, hey, by using this, this is the footprint that you're leaving behind. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting concept. So when you think about paper, you think about glass, think about plastic, all of these things that we're supposed to recycle, is there... Is there one that we should really be focused? Because paper seems like probably it's kind of like uh, uh, glass, pretty benign. Like once, I mean, it, it does take space in the landfill, mm. but it's not leaking out. It's not ruining the oceans. Is there is is plastic kind of the number one thing we should kind of be looking at? Like a to we'll use less of it, but then um, also like uh, you know recycling it. I guess it's f- so funny because like now that I say recycling with plastic, it's like yeah, yeah. I, but but I do know that some of it actually does get recycled. 
Nine percent of it, yeah, yes. right, yeah. yeah. And so the, the the bigger problem is the the cost of that recycling it means a lot of plastic ends up in the ocean. So yeah. if we set plastic aside and we recognize that plastic, just the purchasing of plastic, is a big problem, right? It seems to me like like aluminum or any metals, really. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. that's the big one to recycle. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and yeah. beyond that, paper, glass. Yeah, I mean, um, glass is easily recycled in many, many places. Mm-hmm. It's also a reusable material. That's yeah. the other thing we need to sort of pick up on. Instead of saying, okay, here's the thing, I've used the thing, and now I'm going to recycle the thing. It's like, how can I reuse the thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're seeing more with regards to circularity is how these otherwise single-use um, containers could then be put back into circulation. So mm-hmm. in um, in much of Europe, you can get a beer in a glass bottle, and then you take that bottle back, and it's a reverse vending machine. So you put it into a machine, instead of it being smashed and destroyed to be reformed, mm-hmm. it is then sent off for reprocessing, refilling, that it ends up being a glass bottle again. Yes. Um, and full of beer again. And you can go and you can see in the store, they've got often like score marks that go around where the labels are, which are the score marks from where it's gone through the reprocessing and the refilling oh, cool. machine. So it means that the energy that's gone into making that glass bottle, which is vast, energy um, glass production is really energy intensive, mm. but it means that you've sort of offset that with multiple uses. Right. And as a consumer, you can take it back to the store and you get a small amount of money back. Mm. So there's an incentive mm-hmm. for it to be reused, not reprocessed. Yeah. Um, and there's even now shopping systems that we're seeing. Um, Loop was one that originated in the U- US. It's now back into the UK. And where usually you just get your grocery shopping and they'd come in single-use containers. Now they're coming in glass containers, stainless steel containers. So once you've used the product, and these are household named products. These aren't generic products that you don't know where they've come from. They're Mm. household names that people know and love. Once you've used it, you give it back and then it's sent off for refilling and reprocessing. Mm. So materials, we need to think about how they can be locked up and kept valuable in the in the form that they are yes. before they get destroyed and reprocessed at the end. Yeah, there's a, a restaurant which, since, since you're vegan, you probably would love. It's called Creation. It's very close mm. to here, um, but that's that's all of their packaging. It's all reusable stuff. You have to, you know, you pay that initial deposit, but then when you're done with it, you bring it back. Yeah, there's an incentive behind it. Brilliant. So there are corporations doing what they need to do. Um, yeah, we just. We just see more of it, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, one last thing about the sort of the um, the labeling. I completely agree. Is that we have so many labelings with regards to the nutrients that go in our food, and quite often they're traffic light, kind of like red. You know, this is above what you should be eating, maybe amber than the green. Um, so that gives us a really quick visual identification on a product, a food product, of how it fits within what we are supposed to be getting for our guidelines of our nutrition. And there is a lot of talk about how that kind of labeling might be brought into products. So maybe talking about the carbon footprint that has gone into making something. Mm-hmm. But it's about how you make that tangible. So if we were say, you know, how much carbon should we be consuming on a daily basis? A lot of people won't know because it's something that is ethereal, you know, just yes. it exists mm. somewhere. You can't see it. Mm. So how do we make this more tangible is a real challenge going to be going forward as well. Part of that is is helping people understand, you know, there some sort of measurement for it. But because right now, like you said, it's sort of just this nebulous thing. You say, mm-hmm. if I'm using five parts of carbon or what, I, I don't know what you, you're even saying there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like when you talk about kilometers, I would have no idea. Is that a football <laughs> field? I, I, anyway, um, what, I've, uh, what I've noticed is that corporations actually do 
put some of these labels on packaging, but it's always like a marketing sort of tactic. It's about, you know, the fair trade or, and now there are It's certain, virtue signaling. It is. Yeah. yeah. And, and however, there are some regulations around it. So you can't just go and say your food is organic if it's not, right? right. You can say it's natural because that doesn't mm. actually mean anything. Yeah. But uh, you could say you, you have to do fair trade or whatever. But the opposite of that, having some sort of warning about the damage that to me is just a, such a fascinating concept because we never stop to think about the damage mm. that this product has done before it made its way to this shelf that I'm getting ready to buy or not even a shelf. It's on some some giant warehouse shelf that I'm about to click one purchase so it mm. shows up at my oh. house and all this plastic packaging. Yeah, mm. But the thing is with, with labeling, it can also come with a guilt and that is the problem. As soon as you label something as being you know high impact or whatever... If people aren't able to make any other choice than that item, mm. then maybe you're sort of forcing that guilt onto that person as a responsibility. Now, of course, we do have that responsibility because mm -hmm. we're bringing that thing, whatever it is, into our lives, whether mm -hmm. it's something we're going to eat or whether it's something we're going to use for a short or a long time. But it's going to be really, really delicate as a balance to figure out how we can inform people without them thinking, oh man, I'm making the wrong choice yeah. or I'm yeah. a bad person because I can only afford to get that. Um, but then it will also shine a lot of the light on stuff that's invisible and actually sort of like walking around I've been looking at labels of things and I love going to grocery stores when I'm travelling and just looking at all the stuff that's in things and how much stuff is is hidden away that people don't see so you think about you know um, the fructose syrups and palm oil palm oil as an as a, as a ingredient is in everything from cookies to lipsticks yeah. but how many people realise what it's in because it doesn't have that label slapped on saying, you know, this may be contributing to rainforest forest destruction. Yeah. doesn't have that. That's not a great marketing thing to have, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, yeah, it's, it's about information without preaching and making people feel guilty, which is going to be yeah. a really hard balance to get to. I think quite often the problem with the, the, the guilt there is we often, you even use that term there, people often think, I'm either good or I'm bad. I'm a good person if I do these things. I'm a bad person if I do these things. Well, the truth is you're neither. You're not a good por person or a bad person. Right. You're a person who makes decisions that are sometimes harmful to the environment. And if we can be more cognizant of that when we have other options, that's really what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. If you have an option between option A and option B, and option B happens to be a more sustainable option, then we can opt for option B. And the more we make those intentional choices, I think part of the thing is having those options available to mm -hmm. us in a way that is, I mean, quite often it's more, the sustainable thing can be more expensive on the surface, mm -hmm. but it may actually save us time, money, energy, thought in the long run. Yeah, yeah definitely. Particularly mm -hmm. as things become more repairable, and, you know, if something is designed to be repaired on a longer term, it might be that, yes, the upfront cost is slightly more. But if it means that you can get spare parts for it and you can then amend it to suit your life as, we, as, you, as you go forward and your needs change, mm. then, yeah, the actual length cost of that becomes a lot smaller. So these are things that we need to try and communicate to people more to give them more options and understanding about what's available. And things like right to repair bills are coming mm. in the US and in Europe as well. So the fact that things that are being manufactured, not all things, but a lot of things that are being manufactured, particularly household goods, um, mean that they have to have the ability to be repaired. Mm. So you can get the bit when something busts um, at you know a reasonable cost. Mm -hmm. So then things have to be designed 
to allow that thing to be able to repair and not the planned obsolescence that we have at the moment where things oh just goodness. work for a certain amount of time, then they bust and then you buy the new thing because that's better for the corporations that you're buying something else yeah. rather than yeah. maintaining what you have now. Makes and this has gone on for many years. This isn't a new invention. Planned obsolescence has been around since the 1920s. Oh, wow. Last time my phone died, I, um, I had to buy a new one and uh, I, I brought it in. They're like, how old is that one? I'm like, it's four years old. And they go, oh, it's time for an upgrade. <laughs> and they sold me the phone. And the woman there said, oh, congratulations. Like She brought the phone out and said, congratulations. I said, stop it. Yeah. Like, Why would you congratulate oh, me for making a consumer purchase? Like, I'm using, you wouldn't congratulate me if I bought a hammer, right? This right. is a tool for me. Mm-hmm. And yet we, we get so tied up in how sexy these products might be. Mm-hmm. And... When they we lust after those things that way, it creates this false demand that we feel compelled to constantly upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. As soon as the new thing comes out, mm-hmm. I must upgrade. Otherwise, I'm mm. deficient. I'm inadequate. Yeah. And mm. I think with phones, you get that a lot. Um, and I know I've spoken about this with students and saying about, you know, when you get that, that message through, you, you've now paid off your handset. You're entitled to a free upgrade. And you go, free upgrade. It's not free, no. is it? It just means you you carry on paying them the money because you now own the thing that you've maybe been buying month to month to month. Mm-hmm. So you own it. So it is yours. But then that's giving them no money on yeah. a monthly basis. So you're entitled to the free upgrade, which is just basically means you're paying a corporation more money every single month. Yeah. And the thing that you that did create a huge amount of value in your life is now relegated to the draw. And the amount of money that is locked up in the resources and that phone alone mm. is staggering, but they're so small and they just get hidden away. Again, it's resources in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that perception that you're no longer at the forefront of where you should be and the thing that you have has got zero value. Well, do you know what? My, my phone is about to be bricked by Apple mm-hmm. because it is that old. Uh-huh. It, is, it will get to a point where it's not going to get any security updates very, very soon. Um, and every single time I've come through with a security update, I was like, oh God, oh, it's not on the list. Hooray. I don't need to get something new. Yes. Yeah. Because it suits the purpose that I have. Right. Yeah. It's, it, not, it's not a fashion item. It's a tool. Like yeah. you say. Yes. And it, it doesn't mean that we never get a new one. Yeah. Right. It just means that if we can wait, if we can refuse to constantly upgrade every year or every other year, even Mm. then what we're doing is we're protracting the life of the thing that Mm. we did buy. Yeah. I kind of like, I don't know, it's not a badge of honor, but I kind of gamify it where I'm like, how long can I hold on (laughs) to this phone? (laughs) Like I like I had the iPhone five for years and years and years. I mean, we're like, I'd pull it out and people were like, is that the five? <laughs> like, <laughs> you're still on that thing? You um, hipster. I, I had, so I had the oldest phone, except I had a buddy who, um, I think he finally upgraded, but he had the original, the the three. Oh, no way. Yes, he had that up until like just three years ago. Wow. Four years ago, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, once we get in the right mindset, we could actually find you know, that JOMO, the joy of missing out rather than the fear of missing out. Like the phone doesn't work anymore. I think that's why Sean doesn't respond to my texts right away. (laughs) He's got the iPhone 7. Right. (laughs) 
and uh, it just uh, it's delayed yeah. significantly. Yeah. Well, mine's the yeah. old SE, so I think that's like what a nice. six classic. Yeah. And the amount of times I have done exactly that, I put it on the table, and people have gone, "Damn, that's <laughs> <laughs> like, my phone." Don't be so rude. And they look yeah. like look how tiny the screen is. It's like. Yeah, it's perfectly big. It, you know, it fits in my pocket. Yeah. It functions. Yeah. Happy days. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, and that's the thing. It's what is appropriate for you. And then we're seeing that so many more young people now are going to flip phones. Mm. Mm. When Ryan and I worked in telecom, I remember in 2003, we started selling the BlackBerry and it promised that it, re- that it would... It would give us an extra hour to two hours of productivity a day. Right. Oh, it sure did. It yeah. sucked our whole evenings up with, you know, and then our mornings, first thing you get out of bed, you're, now your face is in the glowing screen. And then, of course, the iPhone came out in 2007, and we are more addicted to the apps and the glow and the dopamine rush mm-hmm. of Instagram and TikTok and dating apps, et cetera, that we are constantly, I mean, uh, there was a the chief evangelist at Google called the smartphone the 79th organ. Oh. Well, doesn't it feel that way? Because yeah. you don't leave home without your liver. But when's the last time you <laughs> left today. home without your smartphone? <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah. Uh, check in with our live stream here. Patrons, thanks for tuning in live. What do we got? We got any questions here, Alabama? We do. We have a question from Arbery. What are your thoughts on the Right to Repair Act in the United States? Oh, right to Repair. So the Right to Repair Act is basically the an act, and there's lots of them coming around the whole of the, the, um, the world, actually. And it basically means that a manufacturer will have to build in to some items the ability for that item to be repaired mm. in the future. Now, there are a lot of people that think this is a really great thing because it means that our products, when they do bust, and they do bust for all sorts of reasons, mm. um, will have the ability be, to be repaired and continue to be repaired. Where some criticism comes, this comes from a lot of bills, is in the nuances of the bills that, that they are actually being created. So some of the um, the regulations might state that the... Um, the items that you could get can only be purchased if you're an approved contractor. So, of course, you couldn't just necessarily go to a website and buy something and fit it yourself because of health and safety regulations. Mm. So, you can kind of see the yeah. point of that. But then yeah. also, it might be the improved contractor um, costs a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. So, maybe it pushes it outside of the economic balance that you've got from going to get a brand new item. So, with all of these rights to repair, say you've looked a lot extensively into the one that was brought into the EU, which was um, July last year. And they're all following very, very similar patterns is that they are a great step forward, but they're not quite the solution yet. And they don't often cover things like things with screens. No. So what's the thing that's going to bust the most? Well, your phone, you drop it out of your pocket. Yeah. That's not currently covered by a lot of the Right to Repair Acts. And I say, mm. you know, everybody can look at their own regulations locally to figure out what's actually covered. Yeah. So they're a great step forward. And they're definitely... Um, the fact that the industry and regulators are understanding that this is something we need to do. We need to keep things going longer. Mm-hmm. Are they flawed? Yes. But are they better than nothing? Definitely. Yeah. It's interesting how sometimes these regulations may make a situation a little worse. Like I think about in California, they outlawed plastic bags. Mm. So then the grocery stores were like, okay, well, we can sell reusable bags, right? Mm. They're like, yeah, of course you can sell reusable bags. They're like, okay, so how thick yeah. does a bag need to be in order for it to be considered reusable? Oh, wow. So what they ended up doing is like, now you go to the store, you buy a reusable bag for a nickel. 
Mm-hmm. And what they've done is they've just made it thick enough to where now the state considers it a reusable bag, but really it's just a thicker plastic bag. I think when you do the math, it's like 50 plastic bags that mm-hmm. that they banned. It takes 50 of those to make one of these nickel reusable bags. Yeah. So it, it is, again... And, and just, how many people actually reuse them? Right, yeah. exactly. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know... Um, I do, but you're right. Like not many. Not do you reuse every one fifty times? No, though? absolutely not. But but mm-hmm. I but I do. But I go out of my way to reuse as much as I can those plastic bags. But you're right. Like, am I getting the fifty uses out of it? Probably not. Um, but all that to say is, is like there are these regulations. They are a total step in the right direction. And and we do have to figure out exactly how uh, to use these regulations for the better. But it is. It's just unfortunate that sometimes you got this really good regulation with all the best intention mm-hmm. and then you see what it causes and you're like oh no mm-hmm. it kind of made it a little bit a little bit more complicated and it makes it more confusing for the general yeah. public because this mm-hmm. is already a deeply complicated you know subject it's the whole reason why i wrote the book is because trying to explain circularity is so complicated mm-hmm. and it carries so many different avenues of conversations you can have with people and i do have loads of people come up saying well i heard this statistic that this and this is that right and sometimes i go yeah yeah and they go, oh, well, why is that then? And actually with plastic bags, there was research done. It was the carbon footprint of different bags. And the mm. the carbon footprint of a paper bag and the carbon footprint of a, of a plastic bag. Now, if you used both of them just once, mm-hmm. the paper bag had a carbon footprint three times higher than wow. if you use the plastic bag just once. Oh, wow. So, of course, you think you're going to the store, you're making the right decision, you've got a paper bag, mm-hmm. and then you go, great, so then I'm going to take it home, and I've done a good thing. Whereas actually, from a carbon footprint perspective, if you use it once, you use three times the amount of carbon than if you used a plastic bag once. Oh, wow. But then we can get into the discussion of, okay, what's happened to the plastic bag? You can't recycle it, so it's going to end up in the ocean. Yeah. Well, that's worse than a paper bag that you can put in your compost bin at home, mm-hmm. or it could be reprocessed. So again, Again, it's the conversation is not just like one singular item. It goes yeah. into multiples. There's so much nuance. Yeah, yeah, so much, which is what makes it both exciting and really frustrating yeah. for everybody to discuss. Yeah, and if anything, like from this conversation, that that's what I hope people pick up on is the nuance of the talk of the environment. It is something that we have to look at individually. Josh doesn't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. Certainly not. But what we do, we have some ideas. We have some ingredients that people can, you know, take apply to their own lives and be a little bit more conscious when it comes to this stuff. 100%. Yeah. Let's wrap up with a question here from one of our patrons. Jeff has a question for us. Is overpopulation actually a problem? How many more time have we got? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of nuance, you know, we were just yeah. talking about nuance. Ooh, yeah. the, the, oh this is a rather nuanced question. Mm. Now, Claire, is it's true that as people become more educated, spe- specifically as women become more educated in certain countries, mm-hmm. the birth rate goes down substantially. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this, again, is one of the other discussions you hear a lot about um, humans as a species. There are too many of us. Mm. You could argue, and many do argue, that, yeah, there are definitely too many of us mm-hmm. working in the way that we are now, yes. living in the way that we are now. Mm-hmm. And again, it's very easy for people to go, yes, but you've got other populations around the world and they're having multiple children and multiple families. But then if you look at the way those families might live their lives, they might actually have a far less impact than maybe a smaller family Mm -hmm. elsewhere in the world. So there's lots of finger pointing that goes on. And I think with overpopulation, it's one of those easy to point and go, well, it's not our problem, it's elsewhere. 
Mm-hmm. And it's really not the case. And there's been lots of studies that have looked at how actually population is leveling off. Mm-hmm. Um, how exactly, as you said, as as um, other populations and females become, you know, higher educated in levels, they tend to have less children. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, again, it's really nuanced. But I wouldn't say that overpopulation is our primary issue. Mm. It is certainly something that's compounding the issues we have. Mm-hmm. But reducing the population wouldn't necessarily reduce the problems. It's about the way we live, not the amount of us that there are. Yeah. And if anything, that's what the overpopulating does is it it makes us have to focus on not depopulating the earth, but how are we going to live with this much of a population in a responsible way? Yeah. yeah. And circularity is, is are all about that. We all have to have the ability to live to a humane standard on this planet, mm-hmm. utilizing the resources that we have in the best possible way. Because, you know, you, you see the, there is no planet B, there is no, you know, there nowhere else apart from if you're Elon Musk and you're heading off to Mars or whatever. <laughs> um, there is no ability to nip somewhere else and get more stuff of resources to live on. Mm. We only have the confines of our planet and we all need to be able to use those resources fairly. Yeah. Claire? We'd like to acknowledge you. Uh, thank you for writing this book. Yeah. It's called Welcome to the Circular Economy. I'll hold it up one more time yeah, Thanks so much for, for our patrons. Thank you. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. Is there anywhere else where we should send folks to find you online? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, um, which is at Claire Potter. And you can find me on Instagram as well. I'm on sort of on there at various points. I'm certainly trying to become less attached to the socials, but mm. yeah, I am on their Instagram. You can get me pretty easily. So it's at Claire Potter Design. Okay, beautiful. We'll put links to those in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. You're patrons, awesome, Claire. <laughs> thank you so much. Love people. These things. We'll see you soon. Thanks, patrons. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it